interesting to see where you are and you do switch theaters every once in a while. Just yeah, I think that's just to throw us off. But there, but you kind of moving down. Um, I um, had an interesting thing happen. Um, my oldest son is autistic. He's 28 years old. Um, he's got a 28 year old soul and again of a seven year old mind. And uh, and he came back from the program he goes to three days a week. It's called Vicini. And he came back the other day and he was just in a bad mood. And he was just kind of. You know, and, and just was kicking things around and just in a, just a really a, a foul mood. And Mona said, my wife Mona, um, we're in a theater named after her today. <laughs> so, um, that, but um, my, my wife Mona said, so Skyler, what's wrong? He said, I don't want to go back. Why, why don't you want to go back? They like you so much there. And he goes, they don't realize I'm a hero. And then he then he took out his uh, kind of fake sword and started beating up our shrubbery. Um, and there's a sense to hear a young man say uh, somewhere in the core of him that he knows what he longs to be is, is somehow heroic. That there's something about him that knows that he was made for stories that you that weren't just places where you just fill up the scenes, but where you really matter. Um, it's been a really tough week. I told Anthony that if I'd had his phone number, I would have canceled this morning at 3 o'clock. Um, my, my, uh, my son Skyler is in the hospital. He went in the hospital last Wednesday, and, uh, and uh, has, we're, we've got some, some problems, and we've been swapping out. And then uh, my wife had a kind of a little struggle last night when, when some things didn't work out really well. And, and just enough to say, at about three this morning, I was in the emergency room with my wife, and and, and it was just interesting. I don't say that for any other reason. It's just that's 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 what it was. But as I was sitting in there, you could hear all the other other things going on. And since ours was just a, a mother who loves her son fainted, <laughs> don't don't faint in the hospital, or you will have, you know, you'll end up in the emergency room. So. Um, so we were on a pretty low priority, and so all the priority things around us in the hospital, we were, you know, we were just sitting there listening to. And there was a uh, a heroin overdose um, a couple of places over. There was a somebody who'd been in an accident um, a couple of you know a couple of these little rooms over. And and I think all of the people in that room, every single person, was hoping that this is not how their story ended. That this wasn't the end of their story. They, they wanted to hope that, that that something would happen, something, some heroic moment, something would happen where their story didn't end in a hospital room in Altamont Springs. That there would be. They wanted hope. We are people that long for hope. We, we long to know that um, that this isn't how our story necessarily ends, even when it's good. And so this morning, we're going we're gonna to talk about hope, because the first week of Advent is a week where, we, where, the, where the church historically, for centuries, has looked back and thought of hope, because it's easy to forget in the middle of life um, how the story ends. And so we could, let's pray real quick together, with the idea that we're going we're gonna to talk about what it means to hope for a hero. Um, and let's, uh, let's just pray for a minute.
Father, thanks for the privilege to be here this morning. Thanks for your grace to my family this week. Thanks for the grace for all of us. We don't thank you very often. We more often complain. But you've given us life again this day, and we thank you for that. Pray that you would meet us here this morning. You know every person here. You know the people that fought on the way here, and you know the people that don't have much hope at all. You know the people that are worried about information from doctors, and you know the people that are worried about bill collectors, and you know you know how the, the people in this room are just hoping that it's true, that they really belong to you. And so, Father, meet us here this day. Change us because we spend a few minutes in your word. Change us because you live inside of us, and therefore we can live with hope. Father, for the people in this room that are too comfortable, would you use our time together to disrupt them? For the people that are disrupted, would you use this time to comfort them? We pray in the powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen. I really have a lot of respect for Anthony. I don't know that he does this, but there's a, there's a real crisis in the church. And that the church, the crisis is that people are too often use movie quotes in sermons. That's a great crisis. But I'm going to use one. It's in The Lord of the Rings, which is also the most quoted movie ever by pastors. Um, that and then Star Wars, I think, or something, you know, or Ben-Hur, who knows. But um, there's a moment in, in, the, in The Lord of the Rings when they're thinking about their story. They're thinking about, will they ever be the same? Because they're just ordinary people caught up in an extraordinary circumstance. And Sam is talking to Frodo, and he says this, I know it's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, you know, the stories that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger, they were. And sometimes we didn't want to know how they would end, because how could they end happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? For example, your phone just stopped in the middle of the quote. That would be a bad thing. How the world could go back when there was so much bad had happened. But in the end, it's only passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness has passed. A new day will come, and when the sun shines, it will shine out clear. Those are the stories that stay with you. Those are the stories that meant something, even when you were too small to understand. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folks in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, but only they didn't. They kept on going because they were holding on to something. Great quote of the stories that mattered. I'd like to suggest to you that we're in a story war. There's a story where there's two authors ultimately to the stories of our lives. There's a story who's, there's an author who writes the stories of our lives and the themes of his writing is always isolation, separation, and despair. 
And the other author of stories of people's lives writes stories of redemption, hope, forgiveness, and life. It's been a war between those two basic stories since the beginning of time. It's the grand story of God redeeming creation unto himself and an author trying to hijack it to despair. And we're caught in the middle of that story war. Now the truth is, the end of the real story has already been written. It really has. The, the world does is redeemed back unto, unto God and and hope there is a there is a hope, but sometimes in the middle of the story, you forget that. Sometimes in the middle of our lives, we forget that. You've got to be careful where you end a story, because even the most wonderful stories, if ended at the wrong time, can be a tragedy. They can be a comedy. They can be full of despair. You've got to be careful where you end a story. Hope's a funny thing. God knew that we would live in this odd time of creation where we were in this battle to understand because, because where we sit often, we can't imagine love winning. Sometimes where we sit in our lives, we can't imagine a good outcome. We can't imagine redemption. But something in us knows that we were made for that, and that's what's true. Just like my son, somewhere inside his seven-year-old cognitive mind, there's something about, I'm made to be a hero, and I know it. And you and I are made for stories of grand redemption. You and I are made of stories that make a difference in people's lives. We're, we're made for stories that mattered. Because you belong to a God who doesn't write bad stories. God writes the story. The theme of God's stories are always redemption, connection. It is Satan when he writes his stories that the stories be, are about isolation and fear, desperation. And both of them have a pen and, and you're a character in their stories. The arc of history, the arc of history, the arc of the story, the plot of the story is redemption. I need to tell you, the reason that sometimes we're enamored by the stories that Satan writes is that he lets you be the star of that story. You get to narrate it any way you want, or at least you think you do. And you can tell your story like you're a, a victim, and your story is a tragedy. You can tell your story like you're a clown and your story is a, a comedy. You can tell your story like you're, it's a documentary and you're a cynic. You can even tell it heroically and, and try to get people to admire you. See, in Satan's stories, you get to be the hero. You get to be the star. But the story is ultimately about desperation. And the, and the story is ultimately about isolation. Now, in God's story... The story is about redemption. The problem is the star has already been cast in that story. The, the hero is not you and I. The hero is Christ. And you get a bit part 
in the grand story of hope and redemption where you get your own part in the story of death and loss. We have, in, in Orlando, um, they've got conventions there all the time, as you know. A few years ago, they had the Star, one of the Star Wars conventions. It was just a sea of mental illness. Uh, <laughs> 33,000 people showed up to the Orange County Convention Center, dressed like Wookiees and Princess Leia's. And, I mean, you could shut your eyes and you would touch crazy everywhere you went. <laughs> I mean, it was just absolutely the most bizarre thing in the world. My son Skyler loves that stuff. He... He gets a little obsessed with Star Trek and Star Wars, and and, and so we we went, and and I mean it was just it was just an absolute goat rodeo. I mean there was a I, I I saw a family with a stroller, and their child was uh, was dressed up like Yoda, and the and the stroller was retrofitted to look like a snow speeder, you know from one of the and I thought, and I'm a psychologist, and I and I wanted to. I just want to give him my card and say, if you just put this in your kid's baby book, because uh, this kid's going to come see me someday, because they got a lot to work on. I mean, it was just a crazy scene. I mean, I mean, I mean, 33,000 people, I mean, I'm not exaggerating, people, 33,000 people showed up dressed in costumes, and, and don't get me wrong, Star Wars. Uh, another another one's coming out in a couple of weeks. It's a good story told well. Nothing wrong with that. But what I was amazed at is how faithful people are to what they consider to be a compelling story. I was amazed at how how much people how how people were how committed they were to the story. Uh, it was interesting. We real real quick we we're sitting at a table. And uh, there were two people sitting on the each side, went dressed like um, some sort of warrior from the movies, and uh, and they started arguing, and it, and it got really kind of ugly. I mean, it was like, oh, no, you're wrong, you're wrong. They must be fighting about something that really matters. I mean, here we are in public, and they're about to, you know, about to go after each other, and and one of them goes, like, no, 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 a X-wing spider, an X-wing fighter can't go into hyperspace. And the other one goes, yes, I can. And they're, they're, they're getting ready to fight over this. And you want to go, hey, listen, guys, neither one of those things exist. I mean, you're, you're fighting about something that doesn't exist. But what I found, as we sat there we, and we listened and we walked around, how amazing it is to, to see all the people that were so enamored by the story. But what was really interesting is there were people who were stars, who were famous, just because they were in a big movie. And you had to pay, you had to actually pay people, pay to get their autographs. And if it, was, if it was somebody famous, like one of the real characters, you'd pay $25, you'd wait in line and get their autograph. But that, I remember seeing a line, and it was only like 5 or $10, but you get a picture of the, uh, you get your picture with and, a, and get an autograph from like Stormtrooper 7. I mean, he didn't even have a name in the movie. And, and he was back there kind of with his little helmet and people lined up. And it's like, wow, your only claim to fame is you had a bit part in a good story. And I thought of us. Our claim to fame, our hope, 
yours and my hope is not is that this is not how our story ends. My story doesn't end in an emergency room. It ends in glory. Your story doesn't end in bankruptcy or failure. It ends in glory. Your story doesn't end with aloneness and separation. That's Satan's story. The story God's writing is a story of redemption. Now, don't misunderstand. Redemption is not pretending that bad things aren't bad. Bad things are bad. If you were abused, redemption doesn't mean that it wasn't bad. Redemption means that it's just that it's not the end of the story. That there's hope that God can take something horrible and not make it wonderful and not pour Jesus syrup on it but that he can somehow take something negative and still use it for glory and good in both your life and his story of greatness. And see, redemption isn't pretending. Redemption is believing, hope. See, hope is looking at your future and saying, is, is there hope that this isn't how it ends and that there's a, there's a redemptive end to my life? What if we would believe that? You know, that's one of the major themes in the Bible. People are waiting. Oh, the people of God as slaves were 300 years uh, praying to God saying, save us. Save us. They were looking for and wanting a hero. That's it, Moses. The people of God were wanting someone to save them from the Philistines and the giants, and they were praying and saying, who could fight this person? And God sent a hero, he sent David. See, the Old Testament's full of stories that if you listen to the story, if you, if you look what's underneath the story, there's stories of hope. There's stories of redemption. There's stories that say it doesn't end here. That for David, it didn't end with Bathsheba and messing up her life. It ended up with him being someone who understands and loves God. You see, redemption and hope. And so we begin the the Christmas season to remind you that there is a grand story that the arc of history bends toward toward redemption and that Christmas is, is the beginning of us reminding each other of this story of hope. And so the Advent season begins with waiting and hoping. And so all the sermons this week around the country, around the world that are based on this kind of Advent calendar, we're talking about waiting, about redemption, and about hope. I thought we'd look at a story um, together, a story that I've talked about before, a story of, of somebody I really like in the Old Testament. We're going to spend just a few minutes on that story. But please note, and please be aware, that where you are now is not how your story ends. If you know Jesus, your story ends in glory. Now, you may be pretty beaten up and bloody by the time you get there. It may be hard, but the end of the story is known. It's a story that matters. 
the story of hope. And so this week, as we get ready for Easter, God would want us to remember and to, and to hope. Well, real quick, I'm going to do this pretty quickly. I'm going to look at a, a story that, that is a story in the Old Testament that I've talked about before, but it's one of my favorite stories. It's the story of Mephibosheth. And the only reason I want to bring him up again is that I kind of just want people to know that I can say that word. Uh, and uh, Mephibosheth, you'll find him. He, uh, you'll find him in three different places in, in the Old Testament. In Second Samuel, he's just a. Uh, but but he but he's somebody that I can relate to, that you can relate to, because um, the way you see God and the way you see yourself and the way you think God sees you will pretty much determine how you live your life. And Mephibosheth was um, was crippled not because of his own fault, but because he was. The people in charge of him were kind of running away from uh, the king. They had a misunderstanding about who David was, so they were rushing away. As a matter of fact, when uh, when when Jonathan and Saul in Second Samuel four one uh, were, were defeated, David was the new king. And one of the things that is supposed to happen in our country is when there's a there's election when things go back and forth people it's a pretty uh, a pretty easy shift from one to another that's not been historically true historically true in most kingdoms and countries when there's a change of power it's a pretty brutal thing and that would be the case in the old testament and so when david was going to take over all the people that had been loyal to saul said we got to get out of here and so the nurse in charge of taking care of the little prince Mephibosheth gets up and they and they're running. They're running to to to, to away from David's going to be coming in and they don't want to be hurt. And she drops him and cripples him in both feet. So he's now a disabled person. And they go off and live in exile in fear of what would happen if David ever found them. You kind of get the context of the story. Now. If the story ended there, that'd be a tragic story. Be a story of a crippled kid that could do nothing, would make no difference in, in life, living in fear and in exile his whole life. That, if you ended the story there, that's not where the story ends. We're going to pick up the story in 2 Samuel 9. I'm going to read it to you real quickly, very quickly, and then we'll kind of go. David asks, now this is David, the new king. Now, if you remember, even though Saul was his enemy, Saul's son, Jonathan, was someone that he loved deeply, was committed to, made, cared about. They were, they were covenant friends. Is what I mean, they, they made a covenant to support one another. So David asked, is there still anyone left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of Saul in Saul's household named Ziba, and he called to appear before David, the king. He said, are you Ziba? So now Ziba was a servant of Saul. And so Jonathan is saying to him, hey, is there anybody left that I can show kindness to because I care about Jonathan? Because my friendship with Jonathan, is there anybody that we could find? Um, so he says, he asked that question, is there anyone left in the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, there's still the son of Jonathan. He's crippled in both feet. Uh, the idea being there's not much he can offer you. Yeah, there's, there's, there is somebody, 
but he can't do much for you. Where is he? And then he explains where he is, that he's hidden, he's in exile. And so David sends for him. When, when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, comes before him, they sent for him, he bowed down to pay honor. And David said, I'm Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Now listen to what David says to a person who thinks he's going to kill him. Don't be afraid. For I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you the land that belongs to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Here's someone who didn't have any hope. He was living in exile, afraid of David, with nothing much to offer, just surviving. You know, if you had not figured out yet, we're the Mephibosheth in this story. And David is Christ, symbolically in this story. And so what you and I are supposed to do as we see this story is we're supposed to go, oh my goodness, I've lived in fear of God. I've misunderstood who he is. I've been, and what do I have to offer anyway? I'm crippled. Maybe it could be you're crippled because something you've done in your past. I'm too bad to really be used by the kingdom of God. Or maybe it's what somebody's done to you. And you're too angry and you're too cynical or you're too something. Whatever it is, you and I are the Mephibosheth in this story. We're the ones hiding away saying, hey, I don't... You see, that's that's the wild way that Satan loves to write stories. It's amazing. Satan is writing Mephibosheth's story of, of being isolation. God is bad. You have nothing to offer. Oh, but then God picks up the pen and says, is there anyone I can bless? the sake of Christ. And your name is on his lips. And you're brought before him. And he says, don't be afraid. Because surely, you'll eat at my table. Why? When you're crippled, and you don't think you have much to offer, the promise and the hope that you'll eat at his table. The idea that the redemption, this arc of history that bends toward redemption, bends because of the work of Christ toward you. Boy, I can see it in some of your eyes. You want to believe this. You're kind of like my son Skyler that says, I don't realize I'm a hero. There's a part of you that's going, I I want to believe this, but you've lived so long in exile, so long believing there's not much for you to offer, and my goal is just to get from the hospital I'm born in to the hospital I die in without much trouble, and, and, and that's all I have. God wants to tell a better story with your life than that. Let's pick up the story and see what happens next. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied, don't be afraid, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? 
Remember I told you the way you see yourself, the way you see God, and the way you think God sees you will determine how you live your life? How did Mephibosheth see himself? Just a dead dog. What do I have to offer? I've got nothing. And so after this great promise of a, of a better story, now, that's not a promise that your life's going to be easy, because that's not... Um, this Mephibosheth, is, you'll, if you read the rest of the story of Mephibosheth, you'll find that that he was betrayed later on in his life. You'll find that he was he was misrepresented to David. You'll find that he he was there were there was wars and difficult times. So if you think the promise is that God's going to tell a better story, and that better story is it's all about you and everything's easy, that's just not the story he's telling. He is telling the story that your life can matter for the glory of God. He is telling the story that your life is more than just your little little circle. And that he loves you. God is a great author. If you ever meet a boring person, they're just not being honest with you. Because God is not a bad author. He doesn't write boring stories. And, and, and why we think our story won't have struggle and betrayal when his story has struggle and betrayal. And since he's putting us into his grand story... Why we think ours is supposed to be easy when he tells his in a way that isn't easy. You know, in, the, in America, we usually, when we evangelize, we say to people, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. That doesn't play very well in a lot of the rest of the world. Because in the rest of the world, there's a lot of people who have nothing. And if you say to them, God's got a great plan for your life, you're going, I'm just trying to get enough water for my family and enough food. You know what they found that works best to evangelize that part of the world? It's not to say God wants you to be, you know, happy, fat, and wise. Um, but God understands suffering. God's the God who understands sorrow and suffering. God knows that your hurts matter. And he's not left you in your hurts. And that God wants to redeem all of creation back into himself. People respond to that because they don't know they don't know if their circumstances will ever get that much better. But the thought of them belonging to God and sitting at his table, that's um, that's an exciting story. So let's see what happens next. Don't be afraid. Um, uh, he, doubted, he bowed down and said, what, what do you have a dead dog with me? David just, I mean, saw, David just wouldn't have any of that. And he summoned Ziba, the servant, and said, um, I've given your master's grandson, I've given Mephibosheth everything that belonged to Saul and his family. <coughs> Excuse me. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land and give him the crops. So your master's, can't, your master's grandson will be provided for. And Mephibosheth's grandson will always eat at my table. And then it talks about all the, all the things that, that Ziba would do for him. It ends, this chapter, verse 13 ends, And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. And he was crippled in both feet. Mephibosheth didn't have that much to offer God. God didn't save you because he needs you. 
I didn't save you so he could use you. God saved you because he loved you. God saved you because he doesn't want your story to be written by the evil one who, who will leave you isolated, broken, and with no purpose. But he saved you to redeem you. <laughs> and that's our hope. Our hope is not in ourselves or not in how clever we are, how smart we are. Our hope is that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be. And he's chosen you to be a part of his family and to, and to sit and eat at his table. That you're his sons and daughters. I said you could tell your story as a villa, as a victim. Y'all know people that tell their story like a victim. Everything's the story's a tragedy. They want people to feel sorry for them. You can tell your story like you're a hero and and, and people want to be admired. You can tell your story like you're a clown and people want to be enjoyed. You can tell your story like you're a cynic, like a documentary. And you want people to just admire how smart you are as you step back and live one step removed from the story. But that's not how God ever writes his stories. God doesn't write his stories that way. God writes the story of your life and my life from the narrator. The the narrator's stance in those stories is as the beloved, as the one who's loved. The story of Mephibosheth is not about being crippled. It's not about living in exile. It's about being beloved, sitting at his table. And therefore, the story gets told from that perspective. Now, we could finish this sermon right now, and, and most of you want it to be finished right now, and, uh, and just go on. But I, I, I do want you to hear just the rest of the story about Mephibosheth, because it's fascinating. Because at the end of the day, there's two things I want you to kind of take away from our time together. And so it'll just be better served by, by looking at the rest of the story. Can we do that just real quick? Like you're going to say, no. I'm a guest. I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to say, we don't like him. Um, so um, if you just want to make a note, uh, in, in the 19th chapter of 2 Samuel, we meet Mephibosheth again. He only shows up in, three, in four different chapters in the Bible. So in the third place that he shows up is in chapter 19. And, and what happens is that David is out in battle. There's war, and the king is out in battle. You got it? And he needs supplies. And Ziba, remember him, the servant guy? He gets a caravan together and sends out supplies and goes with him. But Mephibosheth doesn't come. And then when he gets out there and he's giving all these supplies to David out in the front lines, you know, there's a conversation between them and this for, you know, like, where's, what's the deal with Mephibosheth? And basically Ziba throws Mephibosheth under the bus and says, yeah, he didn't care about you. He didn't care about you at all. He's not for you. He betrayed him. So even after you get at the table, that doesn't mean your story will be an easy story. It's just a redemptive story. And he gets betrayed. And so then we find this happens, this, we find what happens in verse, um, as, as we look at the, we look at when he comes back and he says, uh, Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, also went down to meet the king. So the king's returned after the battle. 
He had not taken care of his feet or trimmed his mustache or washed his clothes from the day the king left until the day he returned safely. I'll tell you what that means in a minute. That's kind of a weird thing. Out of that, I've not washed either since I was... No, that's not true. When he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said, Why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth? In other words, why didn't you go out there? He said, My lord, the king, since I am your servant and lame, um, I... I said, I'll have a donkey saddled, and he'll ride that donkey out there since he couldn't march. <coughs> so I can go with the king. But Ziba betrayed me, and he has slandered me to you, the Lord. And my, my descendants deserve nothing but death from you. And you gave your servant a place to eat at the table. So what right do I have to appeal to you anymore? Because David gave back the land back to Ziba. And the king said, why say more? I order you and Zeba to divide the land. And Mephibosheth said, let him take everything. Because my king has arrived home safely. So what happens next in the story, and we're almost done, so just stay with me. What happens next in the story of Mephibosheth is he's betrayed. David basically says, I can't believe, forget his land. You can have it, Zeba. You see, if you're a servant... If you deal God with God that way, if you feel like God owes you and you're a servant, you'll always be trying to cut a deal with him. I do this, you'll do that. Okay, I'll go to church, but my kids better turn out okay. Okay, I'll tithe, but by golly, we better do okay. Yeah, I'll do this, but my kids had better be okay. Or my car better not break down. Or I better get a green light when I'm in a hurry. Or something. See, if you treat God as if you're a, a servant and he is merely your employer, you'll always be working the angles. And that's what Ziba did. Ziba went out, worked the angles, got some land, slandered Ziba, and they come back. Ziba, matter of fact, Ziba didn't, way back in the ancient days, you would show respect for someone or you, the way you would show mourning, when you would mourn for someone or grieve for something, you would um, you would not take care of vanity. You would not do the things that, that were full of vanity. So that's why there's that reference to he didn't trim his mustache or or, or clean up um, because the, the, the whole time the king was gone. Because it's a reference back then out of reference you would say, hey, I'm not going to party and look all great and be all be all uh, take care of myself when when my when the person that I am loyal to is, is in harm's way. And so, um, so he was really taking, but here's what happens. At the end of the day, he says, when David realizes he made a mistake, and that's where this metaphor falls apart, because God doesn't, didn't, Jesus doesn't make a mistake, but he's just the picture of Christ in David in this story. Mephibosheth, he says, hey, listen, I'll give you the land back. I, I, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have just, Made that mistake. I shouldn't have given it to Ziba. But do you hear what Mephibosheth says? And, and stay with me. I know you're, I'm, I'm going long. Just stay with me. Mephibosheth basically says, I don't care about the blessings. I don't care about the stuff. I care about you. Oh, that's where the story changes. See, the invitation. God's hope. Your hope is that it's true that God's a redeemer. 
God's hope for you is that you won't live as you won't live in exile afraid of him. You won't live as a servant, but that you'll live as a son or a daughter. And the issue at that point is not what do I get, but whose am I? And, and what's our relationship of connection like? Well, that's the story. This is the week of hope, I've been told. The people that make below $14,000 a year spend 9% of their income on lottery tickets. And a lot of people would go, well, that just shows their irresponsibility. Rich people don't spend 9% of their income on lottery tickets. That's because they're more careful. No, it's not a matter of responsibility. It's a matter of desperateness. When you don't think you have any hope that there's nothing you can do that's going to fix it, well, then you'll try a lottery ticket. I think the last time I bought a lottery ticket, I i guess I'm not supposed to buy lottery tickets. So. <laughs> Don't tell anybody. I think the last time I bought a lottery ticket, I just looked at my retirement income. My greatest fear is that Skyler, my son, is going to be in the hands of a, a government worker for minimum wage after I die, kind of pray that I'll live him by one day. I remember, remember the last time I bought a lottery ticket, I just looked at the numbers and, and realized that it was going to be really difficult to come up with the amount of money I would need to take care of him for if he lived to be 80. And I don't think I did it on purpose. I was just at a 7-Eleven. It was buying gas, and there was that little sign that said I could get $60 million for a dollar. And <laughs> what I was really feeling was hopeless. I really was kind of looking at my future and saying, I don't have, I don't have what it takes. <coughs> yeah, I'll spend a dollar because I don't have a future. That's not the story of the gospel. The story of the gospel is you don't have to be the hero. There already is one. You don't have to figure it all out. Somebody already has ahead of you. You don't have to have all the answers. He does. You just have to realize, even if you're crippled, even if you're emotionally crippled because of things that have happened to you, even if you're angry and cynical and broken, if you're his, you need to realize your job is to sit at his table and be his sons and daughters and get caught up in a wild, crazy story of redemption. And it won't be an easy story, but it will be a true story. It will be a story that matters because it's his story and your story. And that's our hope on the week of hope of Advent. Let's pray.